So, big change, right? When someone comes on full-time with the church. You know, I, I confess that, um, you know, early on I was enthusiastic about Larry coming on. Early on. Um, talked to him about it, asked him if he'd consider it. And, you know, in the course of that conversation, um, I said, well, you know, what kinds of things do you see yourself doing? And we sort of have some ideas. And, and he said, hey, don't, don't worry, I've got this, uh, you know, job description. So he just handed me this picture. And he said, that's his job description. <laughs> well, then <laughs> I thought, oh, man, what are we getting ourselves into here? <laughs> Well, so my initial doubts, then they, they grew when, when he said, well, when do you want to come on? And he said, well, June 1st. I was like, well, okay. And, and then he said, by the way, my first two weeks will be vacation. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and I thought, do I admire this guy or do I just scratch my head? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, anyway, you guys know I'm kidding, right? So it would be hard for me to communicate my enthusiasm for both the Stewart family being at Lion and Lamb and for my enthusiasm for Larry coming on board full time. This is from his lovely wife Trisha's Facebook page when Larry was retiring from the Air Force. This is my man's last day of active duty, so proud of his 27 years in the Air Force. And this sort of, this, this goes to their view of life and service and 19 years of service so far with the Lord, that more years, Air Force is done, but more years ahead for service in the Lord. And that's, uh, is that Master Sergeant? What is that? Uh, senior Master. Sorry, okay, sorry. Senior Master Sergeant uh, Larry Stewart on his retirement day. So that's the kind of guy you want, right? Called, committed, duty-bound, ready to roll. And this is the Stewart family from last year. So the Stewarts we know and love. You know, I actually remember the first Sunday they came to Lion and Lamb. We were at the Holodome West. We were there for the summer because it had air conditioning and the gym at CPLS did not. And uh, two families actually came in for the first time that Sunday. I'm up front and I see them come in and think, okay, i got to go say hi and meet them and the stewards were one and i won't mention the other but they're here as well so they've been a real gift to lion and lamb church i want to say a few things too just about this with with larry and the church um, larry's actually mentioned some of the things i was going to say but i'll maybe cover bases twice here share some things he didn't know um, like most people who leave a career to serve in a church full-time um, I'll tell you, Larry's taking a notable cut in pay. And Larry has the same benefit package from Lion and Lamb that I do. <laughs> and he's good with that, which I appreciate. Uh, you know, when the Greens left, we had a hole in college fellowship, just the investment there. Larry's going to be overseeing that. He'll continue with Mosaic as well. Discipleship, counseling, Larry mentioned he got a master's in pastoral counseling in preparation for his hopes to serve in a church. And the administrative oversight um, is a big deal for me. You know, ideally we serve in the areas God has gifted us, and I am not gifted in administration. So 
I've worked hard and very inefficiently at it over the years. So somebody came into my office. <clears throat> they saw my bins on the wall. They saw my, uh, my stacks of one thing and another. And they said, man, Mike, you look so organized. Deneen, do you know who this was? It was you. She said, I'm so impressed. And I was like, you have no idea. Yeah. I said, I have to work really hard at this because this is not me. I have to work double duty to be efficient and organized administratively because this is definitely not my gift. Larry, Larry brings a great gift and talent to us in all things administrative, which I'm really glad for too. And I love the fact, uh, <clears throat> you know, that he was looking for this job with a church. Do you guys find this in your own life sometime? You have a desire, you have a hope. You think you know how you're going to bring it about. You know, Moses killed an Egyptian and thought everybody would get it, that he's their savior And 40 years later. So that the stewards were simply faithful where they knew to be, come and take a job, and they end up circuitously right where he was hoping to go, just not in the way he thought it would happen. Or probably not in the place either. Who would have thunk? Topeka, Kansas, right? I think Larry and Trish said that they hadn't spent more than two or three years in one place in their marriage. So they were already uncomfortable in Topeka because they knew they had no immediate cause to leave. So anyway, I'm really enthusiastic uh, about a guy and a family. As Kent mentioned, the Stewarts are really great examples of simply a service servant attitude. And many of us here have been on the receiving end of that. So sense of call and commission, commitment. We're good with all that. That uh, is also our introduction to this morning's message, which is the series Christ Overall. We're studying through the epistle to the Ephesians. And Paul, like Larry, was called, he was commissioned, and he was committed. And that looms large in the text we're going to be in this morning. We're going to cover three points. Paul's commitment born out of his sense of being called and commissioned we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul calls the mystery of Christ. And we're all going to, also going to see a significant reason of what God is up to in this whole plan of redemption, in this whole mystery that Paul calls the church. What was going on? What was God up to in all that? So we're in Ephesians 3 this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 13. If you use the Pew Bible, which is ESV, and that's what I'm reading from, uh, it's 977. So Ephesians 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and I'll just tell you here, from verse 2 on, this is a digression, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, but the thought Paul starts in verse 1, he actually doesn't get to until verse 14. He was going to pray, but as he begins, he realizes, I want to tell you something else. So everything we're studying this morning is a digression. It's what we call a parenthetical section. And he's going to get back to where he was heading, which is the prayer at verse 14. But in between these, he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, earlier in the epistle, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, some versions say the unfathomable, riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So we said this is a parenthetical section, and he digresses to tell these guys two things basically. He's going to tell them about the mystery. We'll pick that up in a minute. But he's also telling them that primarily he is the messenger of the mystery. So here's the mystery. Here's what it is. And he's in fact already given us the content of it. He just tells us here that this was something no one else could have known. No one else could have found out. But he's saying basically I was the guy God chose primarily. Not, not solely, but primarily to give this message of the mystery to the church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And this work, you know, if you read Paul's biography in 2 Corinthians and Philippians, his was a tough, tough road. Shipwreck, beatings, imprisonments, chains, lost in the deep, battled with animals, you name it, he suffered it, stoned, you know, they left him for dead. His was a very, very difficult road. And so you kind of say, well, what was it that kept him going? What enabled him to keep pushing when most mere mortals might have simply given up one we can say certainly a consistent faith and confidence in the gospel he said i know whom i have believed i know who christ is i know the work of the father i have the spirit i have faith i know whom i have believed but also the clarity of his own call to service is the other thing if you know who your father is if you know who you belong to and you know what he has called and commissioned you to do you have a sense of purpose I've, I am I'm identified by my Father. I am called. I am commissioned. I've got work to do. I've got something I'm responsible for. And that's what Paul had in spades. And the lion's share of our time here this morning is just working through what he said about this call on him. So if you look at verse 2, and hopefully you have a study sheet, he says, I'm assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That term stewardship is oikonomia in the Greek. We've read it once in verse 10 of chapter 1. There it was translated a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. But the definition of that term stewardship is an administration usually of a household or an estate. If you think of the role Joseph had in Egypt at Potiphar's house, he was a steward. He was given the role in that household, and that estate of that wealthy guy to oversee all his things. That's the same role Paul says he was called to. 
It's a religious economy. It's a way of doing things. When you hear of the theology or the theological branch of the church that's called dispensationalism, that word comes from oikonomia. And the use of that term comes from Ephesians 1. Some people talk about the covenants. Other people talk about the dispensations. In any event, they're going to, how was God working in that particular time and place? And that's what's going on here. So Paul says, I am God's steward. God has entrusted to me specifically the call to make his mystery known, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ. Remember, this didn't occur, couldn't have happened before Jesus' death and resurrection. This is an entirely new message. So he says, I've been made a steward. God has commissioned me over his household, as it were, to reveal this mystery, to preach to the Gentiles, and also to let the Jews know what God was up to. Now he says at verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Um, this is important. Uh, Paul's not saying, I got this message from someone else. He didn't get it from anyone else. He was uniquely picked out by God to this special ministry, and God said directly to Paul, this is what's going on. Because this was, when we use the term mystery, see if I'm getting ahead of myself, I think I am. I'll hold that thought. When we talk about mystery, basically we're saying something we didn't know and couldn't know. So Paul says, God gave me the content of the mystery directly. I wasn't relying on anyone else for this. This is what God specifically gave to me. You know, if I gave you a singular task to do, you have a sense of responsibility for that. And that's what Paul had. So he's a steward, but he also knows uniquely I've been picked out by God to take this message, this mystery others didn't know, and to circulate that through the Gentile word primarily. If you look at verse 5, he's the key guy for the mystery, but he's not the only guy, because here he says, the mystery of Christ has been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. These apostles are not Old Testament, or excuse me, these prophets are not Old Testament, they're New Testament. So when Paul talks in Ephesians 2 about the foundation of the church resting on the apostles and the prophets, he's talking about the New Testament prophets, not old. Because the Old Testament prophets, they didn't get this. They didn't know this. They didn't know anything about it. So he says this, this tiny group of apostles and prophets were given this new information, Paul primarily, but the rest of that group also, because otherwise they wouldn't have known it. They wouldn't have gotten it from the Old Testament. If you look in Acts 10, you don't need to turn there now, but... You remember Peter when he's tired and he's on a rooftop and he's taking a little slumber before lunch? They're on the seaside and he has a vision. The text says he has a vision and God lowers the sheet and there's all these animals and God says three times, uh, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And Pete says the same thing each time. He says, hey, Lord, these animals are unclean. I'm an observant Jew. I've never eaten anything unclean. And so God says, what, what I have declared clean, don't you call unclean? And Pete gets it. Gentiles come and say, hey, our master Cornelius has been told by God to come and get you. And Peter understands. So when he goes to Cornelius' household, he did something he wouldn't have done before that. He goes into the Gentiles' house. And the Jew wouldn't have done that before. Because God showed Peter like he showed Paul, I've declared the Gentiles clean. 
this, all the Jewish ceremony that kept you guys separate, it's gone. You're free to intermingle with them. No problem with that at all. So Paul's part of this inner circle that got this revelation that they couldn't have had otherwise. Then he says in verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. <laughs> you know, I've te teased my family and wife at home. You know that if I rake the leaves, I'm working or I'm serving, but if I rake the leaves at church, I'm ministering. <laughs> it's religious lingo, you know what I mean? So the term comes from the Greek deacon, and we would normally just say a servant. So Paul says of this, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace. So I'm a steward. I'm the guy God directly gave it to. I'm part of this inner circle. And now he says, and I'm a servant. You see all the way he identifies with the message? He's just like, I'm called, I'm commissioned. And he ends up with, how can I not be committed? So I'm a servant. I give account to God as a servant and as a steward. And verse 8, he says, though I'm the very least of all the saints. And you remember he persecuted the church. And he sort of carried that maybe a little bit of the sting of that with him because he, he references it in his epistles. I'm the least. I was the guy persecuting Jesus and his church. But he says, uh, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. While on one hand he says, I'm called, I have a responsibility. He also says here, I've been given this privilege, this grace, that God has uniquely blessed me to do something very few other people can do. And I, uniquely to the Gentile world, am doing something no one else is doing. But it's a grace and it's a privilege. It's not just a responsibility. Now, I want to digress to Galatians 1 just to mention for a minute. Um, you know, if you say, um, I'm coming to grips with my life as a Christian and I'm wondering what God has for me and what does that look like, you know, we might think that we're sort of figuring it out as we go along. And that's fine. That's what we do. But listen to what Paul said about God's call on his life. Paul says from Galatians 1, when he who had set me apart before I was born. You know, these words come straight out of Jeremiah too, by the way. Same thing said in Jeremiah 1. When he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. <clears throat> Paul looks back and he says, God's not making this thing up as he goes. He says, before I was born, God had chosen me. He had called me. I was commissioned as that hateful Jewish guy persecuting Jesus' church. He said he had already been called by God, that God's hand was on him. He was God's. And it was just a matter of time until all that was revealed. Isn't that interesting? Uh, for you and I... Uh, God's not making things up as he goes. Your, your gifts, the place you are, the place you're serving, that's all in God's hands. And it's not up to you and me to determine. We sort of just find out, oh, that's what, what God was up to, just like the stewards being here in Topeka. That's what God was up to. I didn't see it, but there it is. 1 Corinthians 9 says the same thing. Think of this, though. You know, why was it that God chose Paul in part? Or what was it that kept Paul going with the, the terribly difficult road he had to fulfill this grace, this stewardship, this service that was commissioned to him? You know, part of it was his constitution. 
That is his personality. You know, before he's saved, this, he's a bulldog. So he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's not content persecuting those Christians in Israel or Judea. He's got letters to go to Damascus. He's chasing them down on the road. You know, he'll say later, I imprison them. I'm there with Stephen when we kill him. He's a bulldog. He's tenacious. Well, God, when he converts Paul, Paul's personality remains the same. You know, when we get saved, God doesn't make us a new person in that our personality changes, our intellect changes, that stuff. We are a new creation. But it's inside sort of the context of what we were already by creation, first creation. So Paul's a bulldog. He is tenacious. And God in part chose him because he needed that to keep going. Part of it, too, was the Spirit's enabling. And you'll see Paul say, the Spirit enabled me. The Spirit of Christ strengthened me. The Holy Spirit showed up and told me something. So he's pugnacious, not pugnacious, sorry, he's not combative, but, <laughs> but he's a bulldog. He's holding on. He keeps going. The Spirit enables him. And then last, he understood that his role was divinely ordained and that like Larry, he was like a soldier under commission. I give an account. I answer to a higher authority. Or... If you think of it in the terms of the old poem, the charge of the light brigade, his duty was to do and die if needs be. And having that sense of divine call, that's important. It wasn't just important for Paul, it's important for us too. So you remember Paul's circumstances when he writes this? Verse 1 told us, I'm a prisoner of Christ on your behalf. Verse 13, he says, don't lose heart over my suffering for your sake. You know, a few of us live the life that we would plan out. A few of us live the life that we dreamed of as kids. For most of us, we sort of chart a course and then the winds of change and chance and difficulty, seems to us, blow us off course. That we have a desire for certain things, but for few of us, do it, does it actually work out that way? You might be. Some of us are in an unhappy marriage or I remember I think of one particular brother here that I know you know whenever I ask him about his his job his work it's a job it's not what he enjoys some of us find ourselves we're paying the bills by doing a job that does not feel like the thing we would like to be about some of us might be parents to children who simply do not buy our values they don't buy into our faith and you think what do I do with that some of us have poor health that limits our ability to participate in life. You know, it's even possible that some of us right here this morning might be in a church that we didn't think we really wanted to be in. That's possible. Might have landed in a place we weren't sure about. In following Christ, though, there's no place a Christian finds themselves that God hasn't already gone ahead and prepared. And this is what we want to take to the bank this morning. What does this look like for us? Because guys, if you're a Christian, you're called and commissioned. The real question is simply, are we committed? Are we committed? There's no calling God doesn't enable us for. Whatever the difficulties are that we face in life, there's no calling God doesn't enable us for. There's no stewardship entrusted to us that Christ doesn't equip us for. You know, God means for us to be in and over our head. If you and I could manage things on our own, God doesn't need us. We don't need God because we can do this. But when we find ourselves in over our head, it's like 
God, you've got to come through. I can't do this. I know I'm supposed to do this. Lord, you show me what that looks like. And, and under Christ and empowered by the Spirit, by faith, we are committed, we should be committed to God's call on us, just like Paul was. For me, this is the thing to take home today. We'll talk about a couple other things, but it's really, do we know what God's call on our life is? Do we know how God's called us to serve in the church? Do we understand we're called as believers, we're called and we are commissioned, but simply are we committed? Are we filling those roles out God's called us to? So are we committed? I'll show you. That's a picture of commitment, right? We, we win or we don't. That's total commitment. Um, in high school, I played a lot of basketball. We were in a tournament my senior year, and it was the semifinals Friday night, and I severely sprained my ankle. And that wasn't the first and it wasn't the last. But I went home that night, and I put my foot my ankle in an ice bath which I hated. I hated then and I still hate. So the, keep the swelling down and then numb your foot so you can get up and walk on it. Keep the blood circulating, minimize swelling and all that stuff. But I showed up the next night <clears throat> at the locker room on crutches. I couldn't walk on my ankle. And I'm in street clothes and I'm looking at the guys and, and I, I know I'm going to be sitting on the bench watching the championship game. And uh, one of the guys on the team says, Halpin, you can play. <laughs> Man, you have no idea. I said, I can't walk on this. He says, no, you could get it taped up tight. He's telling me. He's exhorting me. He's encouraging me. You can do this. You know, and I go from really to, okay, you know, I'll try. So they tape my ankle up tightly, and so I go out and play. And this is not the stuff of movies. This was not pretty. I'm a body <laughs> on the court. I can't move well. You know, the thing that I always remember about this game is I stole the ball at half court on my bum ankle, and I've got, there's nobody between me and the basket. I'm going to jam. Probably with two hands, because I can. And I go down the floor, and you know what? I fell flat on my face at the free throw line, because my ankle just... Yeah, thank you for laughing at my pain and suffering, yeah. You know, but I learned something. Um, a guy with a greater sense of commitment than I had in that moment said, your ankle's not broken, you're not in a cast. It's not that you won't be compromised, but it's that you can do this. You can show up, you can participate. It won't be the way you want it, but you could do this. And so I got to participate. I did participate. We did win the game. You know, and I was glad I did, fall, falling flat on my face and all. But, but oftentimes we need that sense that it's not the way we thought it'd be. It's not what I wanted. But by God's grace, called and commissioned, I can remain committed and we can get on with this stuff. If we're in the body of Christ, we are called, we are commissioned the question is, are we committed? Paul talks about the mystery. He's the messenger of the mystery. And then he talks about the mystery at verse 4. Now, the truth is, he's already given us all the content of the mystery. He's already emptied that bag. He's just saying here, he's qualifying where that information came from and how he got it. So if you go back and you look at verse 2, that's the content of the mystery. 
He already told us. He said, this is the mystery that God is saving Jews and Gentiles in the same body. Because you remember, under the law, under the Old Covenant, Gentiles and Jews cannot mix. Can't do it. You're geographically isolated. You're isolated by the temple. You're isolated by the law in the covenant. You're isolated. Couldn't happen. No one saw this thing coming. So he says, but now that, that middle wall that divided you, the law, the covenant, he said, Christ has abolished it in his death and resurrection. So that it's not that God's saving Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles, but God is saving Jews and Gentiles into one new entity, one new temple. That's the content of the mystery. So he's not giving us content here. He's giving us how this came about. How did we get this information? He says four times in this passage that it's a mystery. It's not a mystery novel. It's not a series of clues that we follow and we find out. In the, in the biblical sense, in the Bible, the mystery is something that if God doesn't tell you, you don't know. So Paul says there was this mystery that was hidden in God in ages past. There's this truth, there's this element of what God is going to be up to that he hasn't given you clues for. So this is interesting. When you're reading the Old Testament with the Old Testament saints, so, so to speak, reading through in a timeline, nobody knows the church is coming. Nobody knows. Because God didn't tell them. When Jews understand the new covenant, they understand the Jewish covenant with God. They're not thinking Gentiles. They're not thinking church. Because it had not been made known. Guys, no one knew this until after the resurrection. No person on earth knew what God was up to until after the resurrection. And God gives this mystery. Hidden in him in ages past, but revealed through Paul and the apostles. I, I love the phrase where he says the plan that had been hidden in ages past. You couldn't find it if you wanted to. If you said, what's God up to in these years? Back then you couldn't have known. There was no way. Listen to this from 1 Peter 1 verse 12. Pete is referring to the Old Testament prophets, right? God shows up to these guys. They write his word. They hear him. They see him. But this is what Pete says about them. He says they recorded things they themselves did not understand. And they inferred because they didn't understand the content of what God had given them, that they were in fact serving a future generation. Not themselves and not their own generation. He says they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They didn't know, but you do know. And he says, he qualifies it, and he says, things into which angels long to look. Now think of this for just a second. So Paul says, I've given you the content of the mystery, but you need to understand this was information no one, no one knew and no one could get because God had hidden it in himself, as it were. And these are things that angels in heaven didn't know about, not just humans on earth. Angels in heaven didn't know what God was up to. Angels in heaven are looking to the prophets and the church to figure out what God is up to. Is that mind-blowing? Angels in the presence of God in heaven come to earth, look at the church, hear the preaching of God's word to figure out what God's doing. He didn't tell them. Does that blow your mind? You could be an angel in heaven and not know what God's doing in God's presence. You'd have to come down to the church to figure out what God was up to. 
that God is uniquely telling the church, mere mortals like you and me, what he was up to. The angels in heaven didn't know. That's cool. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, some people love, some people hate. It's a passage about submission and God's order, the father, the son, the husband, the wife. And, and it's in the, talking about head coverings in the context of gals sharing or praying in the church and as a symbol of their submission to the authority God had placed over them. And totally apart from the content of that message, he throws in this wild card, Paul does, there when he says, in the context of the, the discussion, do it this way, don't do it that way, submission and order and reverence and all that stuff. And he throws in this phrase, he says, because of the angels. And you're like, what does that mean? Where did that come from? But it's consistent with Peter. So imagine this. So, you know, just we've said the devil loves church. He's religious. He's good in churches as he is anyplace else, right? But angels are in church services too. Because Paul said the context there was the angels are meant to see in those meetings of the church the kind of love and respect and care revealed through those lines of authority and submission that they couldn't see in heaven, but they could see here in the church. That angels were spectators at the meetings of the church and God meant to reveal His will to the angels but not directly, indirectly through the meetings of the church. That's wild, isn't it? That you humans like us on earth know things angels in heaven don't or didn't. That's mind-blowing. We need to hold on to that one. Because I think if we do, we see some things differently. If you want to know the things Old Testament prophets looked for but never found, you know what you can do? You can... Read your Bible. I'm serious. And you can participate in the life of the church. God's revealing himself both in his word and in his people in the church. Now, I'm, this is not tongue-in-cheek, right? Mysteries hidden in God in ages past, you have. Old Testament prophets, they have nothing on you. You have information people for thousands of years wanted to know and didn't. It's, it's between the covers of your Bible and it's revealed in the church. If you want to know mysteries the angels in heaven long to see revealed and developed, meditate in God's word and serve in the body of Christ. You see, because it's transpiring, the revelation is occurring through the church. The church is not only the mystery, the church is the method or the mechanism through which that mystery is being made known. And if you want to know God's grand plan for the cosmos and where you fit into that, Spend time in the scriptures and worship with the church. It's not just me by, by myself with my Bible. That's important, and I hope that's true for all of us. But it's also me as a member of the body of Christ participating in the life of the church. God's revealing himself and his will to us and through us. So you say, okay, so Paul's the mystery of the messenger and the content of the mystery was supernatural, hidden by God, revealed through Paul, the other apostles and prophets. And then at one level we say, okay, so what's with that? What's God up to in all that? What's the payoff? Now this isn't the only thing for sure, but this is important and we shouldn't miss this. You know, we tend to make life all about us. And, and for God... 
we are important because God set his love on us, but, but what he does and why he does it is bigger than, than us. And that's humbling, and that's, that's helpful, and that's what Paul tells us here. You remember in the uh, Exodus account, you remember Moses, uh, God calls him and says, hey, 40 years in the desert, you're ready, well-seasoned. Uh, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you back to Egypt. And you're going to tell him, let my people go. And, and he's going to harden his heart, but that's okay, because I'm going to do these powerful signs and wonders, and, and you're going to lead the people out. He says, in fact, you'll plunder them. You won't just go out, you'll go out with the wealth of the Egyptians. Uh, and listen to what he says. God says of Pharaoh to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 16. Why is God doing this? Why does he, he could have done a number of things. He could have just taken the people, got them out. Why does he go through all these miracles? Why? Well, he says, for this purpose I have raised you up. He says to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth in the day. Egypt's the main kingdom. Pharaoh's the head. So to Pharaoh, God says, I raised you up. You didn't raise yourself up. I raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Exodus wasn't just about God saving the Jews. It was about God declaring his name throughout the earth. So he says to Pharaoh, hey, little man, you're not of your own making. I made you. I put you here. I've raised you up. You rebel. You who rebel against God. You remember what Pharaoh says to Moses? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? So God says, well, I'll tell you who I am, and I'll tell you who you are. You're my puppet, Pharaoh. I've raised you up. I've pulled your strings. You have an evil, wicked heart. You're going to rebel anyway. I've helped you in that. But you're here to display my power and to make my name known around the earth. And so when Israel goes into the land of promise, you remember the people at Jericho know. They've heard their hearts are fearful in them. They're told at Jericho because we heard what happened to the Egyptians. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up to make my power known and my name throughout the earth. And just as God put his power on display through Pharaoh, he puts his wisdom on display through the church to the spirit world, to the spirit world. Not just this world. Look at verse 10. Paul says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities? Now these words, the Greek words are used in a number of ways, but in Ephesians, without qualification, they always represent demons, fallen angels the spiritual powers opposed to God. You saw them in chapter 1, you see them again in chapter 6. God says, as it were, God says to Satan, I've raised you up to demonstrate my power against you, to glorify myself and make my name known. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul says God is displaying his wisdom to the unseen spiritual world through the church. It has less to do sometimes with what's going on on this earth than what's going on in heaven. So Paul says God's using the church to display his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heaven. In fact, it says that the wisdom is, in the ESV, it says uh, manifold. In the Holman it says multifaceted. I think the definition is on your study sheet. 
But it's as if Paul says, um, God's wisdom is like a diamond and I hold it up and as I turn it, I see one expression, one facet of it after another. And God is taking his wisdom and he's holding it up to those spiritual powers that rebelled against him and he's showing them the multifaceted aspects of his wisdom, both in their former estate, in their fall, and in God's victory in Christ over them. Because remember, Satan comes in, Satan knew God, and he comes in and he brings death, he brings sin and death into the world, the perfect world God had created. And it's as if he wins, but just like it looked like Pharaoh had won, but God says, not so fast. You haven't won. I'm simply using you and your rebellion to demonstrate my power and to make my name known, and I'm going to show you now a wisdom that you can't do anything about. I'm going to show you what I was up to all along and that you are my puppet, just like Pharaoh was. God is revealing the, his wisdom to the unseen spiritual forces. In fact, it says this in Colossians, which is the sister letter to Ephesians. Uh, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, the spiritual opposition to God. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Satan and his followers tried to destroy God's perfect creation, God's redeemed bigger and better than before. And God says to those who say or think to themselves, we're winning the battle. God says, you're, you're losing the war. This was all my doing, all from time past, all from eternity past. So the church is here. One facet, one important facet of our existence, guys, is simply to be that means by which God's wisdom is revealed to those who opposed God, the spiritual forces that opposed God. You remember we said in chapter 2 that individual believers are like trophies on God's wall, that it's like the large fish or it's like the deer or the elk hanging on God's wall, that we said we are individual trophies to the grace of God. God displays us as trophies to His grace. Well, the church is a living trophy declaring the wisdom of God as he restores all things to himself through Christ. Remember the ultimate mystery in chapter 1 was God's bringing all things back to himself under the authority of Christ, under the headship of Christ. And he's doing that in part, this sub-mystery is he's doing so in part through the church. Through the church. When we share the hope of the gospel with others near and far, as we're called to, Jews and Gentiles, that's the only way God ever divided people, when we fulfill our own call in the church, serving where God has placed us, and when we forgive as we've been forgiven and love as God has loved, that is proclaiming the grace of God in Christ and the wisdom of God in Christ. So we are called, we are commissioned. The only real question is, are we committed? So what is it we understand God's given us to do? What's our spiritual gift? Where has God put us? What has he called us to do? What form of service? What form of stewardship? Because we're all responsible as believers. Now, if you don't know you're a believer, that's another question. You know, to somebody who doesn't know, I love Acts 16. You know, there's a jailer and he's scared. He's ready to kill himself. And he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You know, if you're saved, simple faith, simple trust, in God, you're a member of the body of Christ and you're called to reveal the mystery of God 
to the unseen spiritual forces around us. Isn't that wild? You know things angels didn't know. You know things prophets didn't know. So guys, you know the more you're given, do you know what? The more you're responsible for. So we want to make sure that we're not only called and commissioned, but that we're committed. Father, thanks for using clay vessels, clay jars like us to do your amazing will. And Lord, would you help us, not just accidentally, would you help us consciously, volitionally, intelligently, prayerfully, Lord? Would you help us to fill up the space you've, you've allotted to each one of us? God, would you, would you help us to live in such a way that Christ is honored? Would you help us to live in such a way that as far as we're able and know, we are demonstrating your power. We are living as demonstrations, Lord, of your wisdom as you bring all things back into yourself under Christ. Lord, in his name and for his glory. Amen.